These are the things that I learned during the fifth week of 2011, January 31st through February 6th. January 31st, just how glitchy macOS server DNS can be. In last week's episode, we were talking about all of the trials and tribulations that I was going through in terms of upgrading macOS servers and trying to get XAN working, but this week we're going to talk a little bit about how DNS got really glitched out moving from macOS Leopard server to macOS Snow Leopard server and later macOS Lion server. This was quite a frustrating time when trying to get some very basic networking aspects of these servers to function. I have some notes that would detail some of these DNS problems, which sort of had a cascading effect, which not only broke what was called name resolution, which maps IP addresses, which are like numbered addresses of computers to names, often the backbone of many networking functions, but this also tied into things like signing in with user accounts, which may have used the names of the computers and the servers as opposed to their addresses. And if that name translation via DNS doesn't work, a bunch of things may randomly stop working. And also, with macOS Server, we had some other complications too, like unnecessary tie-ins to the firewall service. And if the firewall was not functioning, then LDAP may not work, and the internet on the clients may not work because we were passing through the internet from the servers to the desktop computers. And in order for that to work, there needed to be a service called Network Address Translation, or NAT, and that was tied into all of this mess as well. So unfortunately, this was just one gigantic pile of services that had to be untangled anytime something like this broke. Sometimes it was DNS, sometimes the firewall service wasn't working. Really, I don't know if it was always DNS every time, although DNS can often be cited as the root cause of a couple of networking problems to say the least, but sometimes it could have been the firewall or something else. I remember this problem would kind of come up at random and often at just inconvenient times. I would maybe just get a call from someone saying that logins were taking forever or the internet wasn't working in the room or some other networking related issue was going on. And I had a big page where I did have a fix that was consistent and worked, but it was just a pain to run because it was a lot of command line commands that I had to run, usually by copying and pasting them in. I believe they all worked remotely, but there was a chance that if I was locked out, I then had to go into the office to remediate the problem. The commands more or less just boiled down to resetting the server's addresses and hostname designations. You would hope that that wouldn't constantly reset itself, especially on servers where you really need that to be set once and forgotten about, and it's just there as static, hard-coded entries. Otherwise, everything else that it's running on 
will topple over, sort of like a big deck of cards or Jenga blocks. You get the idea. This problem would follow me until I stopped being the server administrator for this TV station, and my successor would have to deal with it as well. I don't believe the problem really ever got formally solved before the TV station was dissolved, so it's a little unfortunate. I remember when I was looking online there were similar frustrations from other members of the technical community regarding these strange and random glitches with macOS server. So, at least I wasn't alone in dealing with these problems. And if we want to talk about what I got out of it, we can discuss how I figured out how all of these services tied together, and how one problem can apparently bring a good chunk of the system down. Sometimes you can be surprised at what you end up learning when you have to dive into a problem like this. February 1st. Open Directory Master and Replica Stuff, mainly troubleshooting. Moving right along from troubleshooting DNS and a bunch of networking services on macOS Server onto the vehicle for handling user accounts on the ecosystem for the TV station's Mac infrastructure. This is Open Directory. This is kind of like the phone book of users, and it also enables workstations to log in as these users with, you know, usernames and passwords, and it stores their data on the local storage system, including all of their videos, projects, settings, and customizations for the local Mac workstations. If this isn't working, I have a whole lot of unhappy users. So if you have multiple Mac servers that are at the top of this hierarchy, you usually have one that is considered the Open Directory Master. This is your primary server for handling all of the logins and users. If this server is to go down for any reason, either planned or unplanned, you should have what is configured as an Open Directory Replica, which is a passive, secondary, controller for the identity management platform, and it can take the reins if the primary master server goes down. And this primarily was what I was learning about and what I was trying to troubleshoot. This was brand new in this environment, as we were talking about before, there was only one server before we upgraded the Xserves to the Intel-based ones from the PowerPC ones. So the idea of having two servers at the helm instead of one was new to us, so we had never touched these settings before, and now we were just getting used to them. Naturally, only having this in production for maybe about a month or so now, maybe less, we were experiencing just some growing pains with it. I had a bunch of notes on how to do this both via the regular user interface by clicking around with the mouse and interacting with a very visual windowed interface. And I also was toying with creating all of this master replica setup via the command line via terminal as well. Really cool learning experience. Fundamental for future years when I would start working with scripting and command line. Much more, albeit in different contexts. 
but it was good to know the relationship between the graphical user interface versus the raw command line version of the same thing, because in a lot of instances, especially in IT, sometimes the graphical user interface fails you, and you have to fall back to the command line. Bringing it home here, we never really had to use the replica portion of open directory. I think I can probably count on one hand the few times that we ever actually had a failure where the first server was down for so long that we had to sit tight and use the second one. I either was close enough in proximity to the office to just go in and fix it, or I was able to walk someone through on the phone resetting the first server, or at least getting it to enough of an acceptable working state before I could get in and fix it formally. It was still nice to read the documentation and set it up as Apple intended, though. It really made me feel like a true professional for just a little while before I actually really entered the professional workforce. February 2nd. PowerBook G4s are obnoxious to open. Let me tell you a true college story. Someone comes up to me, a colleague from the TV station, and he tells me, Hey man, I'm looking to see if you can overhaul my Mac laptop. I got a new hard drive for it. I want to really expand the storage so I can run Final Cut Pro on my own computer at home, you know, so I can get a bunch of work done. And also, I might have spilled a beer into the computer at one point, so the computer might need some cleaning on the inside. The keyboard is just a little bit sticky. Would you be able to take care of all that? I'll pay you for it. And of course, naturally I go, Oh, sure. How hard could it possibly be? He hands me the computer. Looks simple enough to repair and disassemble externally take it back to my dorm room, and I go to town on it. About maybe 30 or 40 screws later, I'm on the brink of insanity. This is the PowerBook G4 saga. This was actually maybe one of the very first repair jobs I ever had to do on a laptop. That being said though, I had experience with taking apart at least Dell laptops to swap out hard drives and memory but to get to such equivalent hardware in a PowerBook G4 made from Apple, you have to basically disassemble nearly the entire computer using so many different size screwdrivers and the amount of screws that you need to keep track of in terms of their positioning and order of removal and insertion just gets insane. I had all of this laid out on a desk with a bunch of masking tape and labels, just trying to keep track of where all of this stuff ended up going. I didn't really have that great of a camera at the time on my phone, and I had no other camera around either, so I couldn't really take reference photos. The most I could really do was have another laptop or computer nearby with some reference guides, but other than that, I had to very visually and spatially keep track of all the parts as I took them out just to replace the hard drive and also upgrade the RAM. Oh, and, you know, clean out some sticky beer bits that had accumulated into the laptop for the course of maybe a year or so, because that was just casually dropped on me as well. Hey man, I might have spilled a beer into that laptop. Which, 
normally spells death for most computers, but I guess it was not enough of beer spilled into it to formally kill it. It just made the keyboard a little annoying to use. It's kind of ironic because the serviceability of that computer was actually pretty dang high compared to current MacBooks, which basically have zero repairability. As Apple released newer and newer computers with smaller and smaller form factors and more integrated components, that repairability went away over time very quickly. Nowadays, there is no way you could just tear apart a MacBook to replace the memory and hard drive and keyboard all on your own very easily, unless you have very, very specific tools and very, very specific parts, and a lot of luck to boot. So while yes, it might have been true that it was obnoxious to open and repair a PowerBook G4, I will easily take it over nowadays where, if such an equivalent event happened where you wanted to do a hard drive upgrade and you might have mildly spilled a beer into your computer because you're a college kid, I can't really necessarily guarantee that we could go to the same painstaking lengths to repair the system. Of course, this was all in hindsight. If I could tell myself 10 years ago that laptops would get significantly less repairable in the coming decade, I think I would have been horrified and would have easily accepted the mild annoyance of opening this computer in favor of being able to do it myself. February 3rd, how to completely disassemble and reassemble a PowerBook G4. So we're back. This was simply day two of the PowerBook G4 repair saga. Just like I said before, it was just a matter of taking apart the millions and zillions of screws and bits, putting in the upgrades, reassembling it, doing things such as data transfer, maybe reinstallation of macOS, and making sure it all works. The part that I haven't exactly talked about yet was what I had to do to transfer the data from the old hard drive in the system to the new, much larger hard drive in the system. In order to do this, I had to buy a USB hard drive adapter so I could have both the new and the old hard drives plugged into the same laptop. One thing that macOS does really, really well is drive data transfer, where you can basically just open a disk utility and drag and drop one hard drive onto another, and it would just transfer the data. That is one thing that I think macOS does really, really well, even to this day, even if the process has changed just a little bit. It made swapping disks really simple, and I was looking for simple at this point after doing a painstaking hardware task. So I'm not sure what else there is really to be said that doesn't completely make redundant the previous day's things learned, other than the software components. It was quite a experience in terms of hardware repair. Like I said, I think this was probably one of the biggest jobs that I ever had to do to fix someone's computer. Their main computer, mind you, and I was getting paid for it, so I had to do a good job. Luckily, I was successful. I reassembled the PowerBook G4, got it back to the person who gave it to me, and it got paid. And later, one of his friends came to me with an iMac and kind of wanted a similar thing done, but luckily I didn't have to disassemble the iMac. It was more or less just a 
strictly software-based tune-up. But that's a story for another day. February 4th. macOS 10.5 discs are highly selective as to what computer they work on. I'm going to preface this with, I'm not sure if this is actually true or not, but I'm going to just go by what my experience was and what I remember and how much trouble I basically had with this. So once again, we are talking about when I was doing some Mac repair, there came a point where I had to boot from a macOS 10.5 Leopard disk. And what I was finding out was, it seemed not every macOS Leopard disk was created equally. And if you just grabbed any disk off the shelf and popped it into a certain Mac model and you tried to boot from it, you had varying levels of success and failure. I remember having errors such as maybe the installer wouldn't boot, or you would get to the installer options only to get an arbitrary error stating macOS cannot be installed on this computer. And then if I tried a different disk that was seemingly labeled the same, but it said it was designed for a certain hardware model of Macintosh, it would suddenly work. It's kind of interesting because if I search around online now, I see a lot of evidence to the contrary, stating that these disks were pretty much the same. macOS Leopard was developed during a time when PowerPC was starting to fade away and the Intel transition was going on. And these disks were supposedly compatible with both hardware architectures. But it seemed like they weren't intercompatible between Mac hardware models, oddly enough. Again, this is anecdotal. I'm not sure if this is actually officially true or not, but I had a lot of trouble with it. It's also possible that the source of this problem could have been the DVD drives in the individual computers not complying, or maybe there was some other problem that I didn't discover that was causing the installation failures. Or maybe the disk was slightly damaged. Not entirely sure, but I just remember this was a really unexpected headache. I noticed that the more you have vendor-specific, hardware-specific installation disks, the more you encounter this issue where these disks are not necessarily universal. The further in time we go forward, the less we see of this problem. But we were still in that decade where, apparently, operating system installed disks were not simple and universal, and it was just annoying for us folks who just wanted to repair computers and didn't necessarily have the original installation disks, but had a bunch of other similar adjacent installation disks. And you'd think they would work, but apparently they didn't always work. It was good to know for the future, for sure. February 5th. Sir Isaac Newton died a virgin. I think we're going to put this under probably, and citation needed, and we will never know for sure. I'm not sure where I necessarily got this quote-unquote information from, but there are a few articles online that speculate that Sir Isaac Newton died a virgin. This topic is kind of awkward, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much. I will leave some links in the show notes if you would like to read about this further, if you so desire. Apparently, Sir Isaac Newton was very celibate, and he focused on his work, and wasn't 
distracted from his work and wasn't really interested in detracting from his work, even if that included conjugal visits, I suppose. I'm not entirely certain. History may not know for sure, as we can't really ask any primary sources anymore, and all we've got are just history books at this point. Sir Isaac Newton's contributions to humanity are nothing short of enormous, and whether or not he actually passed away a virgin is kind of honestly irrelevant, but it's apparently something that historians contemplate about. That's about all I have to say about that short topic, I guess. Sometimes things I learn are that easy and there's not much else to really talk about. And finally, February 6th. The U.S. government has a rather unprofessional and humorous takedown splash page they put up whenever they seize websites. When a governmental entity takes down a website, sometimes they might have the courtesy to leave a little splash page up, denoting that it was seized. Often there may be certain emblems of whatever departments were responsible for taking the website down, and there might be a brief synopsis as to why without going too deep into it, as it may be part of an ongoing investigation. And you can often maybe gather some details from some surrounding articles that may explain what happened. What gets a little weird is often the visual design of some of these seizure pages. They can often have these 1990s-style tessellation and tilings to them, along with strange wording, such as putting the word seized all over the background, as if it was a crime scene or if there was supposed to be investigation tape all over it or something, I'm not entirely sure. It's very cheesy looking, and I quite frankly do indeed think it looks kind of unprofessional and like it's something that belongs in a movie rather than an official governmental investigation. This design has changed over the years. Later designs seem to look a little bit more subtle and simpler which is really all it needs to be. But man, for a little while there, in the early 2010s, some of these seizure messages just look downright goofy. And it doesn't really provide a good look. And it's prone to being ridiculed and made fun of, when it really should be considered a much more serious matter. And those who put up the splash pages should really consider that. I know it's asking a bit much here, and it might not matter to a lot of folks, but to me, if I were in that position, I would put the message up, make it straight and to the point, and not bother with strange designs that are memeable or prone to being made fun of. It's all about the professionalism. And that concludes the things that I learned during the fifth week of 2011. It was another week where there was a lot of technical, heavy things to troubleshoot and figure out, mostly concentrated around Max once again. This was just something that I was really focused on at the time. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not super into technical details, I do apologize. I do think we will have some non-technical things coming up in future episodes for sure. Just sometimes these are grouped in interesting ways or might have a theme to them. Things will change eventually. The range of topics and categories will gradually fade 
and transition as we proceed into the future and as I learn more things or my situation of life changes. We also had a couple of fun things too. Note, sometimes on a few days when I have a silly one like the Sir Isaac Newton thing learned, there's a chance that maybe I was having trouble actually recalling something I learned that was really meaningful, so I go around fishing for maybe anything. My rule is, it doesn't matter how stupid it is, if it was something I didn't know before and learned it then, I'll consider it eligible for a daily thing learned. I'm just following my own guidelines here to the best that I can. Anyways, Things Learned is a podcast that is entirely produced by myself. I do go out and look for royalty-free music just to play subtly underneath the things that I talk about, just for some quiet background music to make things just kind of nice and relaxing. All information about this music can be found in the show notes, and also in the show notes you can find any relevant links containing any details regarding things that I learned if you wish to do a deeper dive further than what I explained. I want to thank you very, very much for listening to Things Learned. Feel free to go back and listen to the previous shows and the next shows as they air. I currently air this show weekly, until further notice at least. And feel free to leave a rating about this podcast wherever you get your podcast if you feel it so deserves it. Again, thank you very much for listening to Things Learned, and I will talk to you next time.